All right, let's get right into it today. I, I have a lot of information I want to cover and uh, try to get it all in on the allotted time. Uh, we went into the first book of uh, the first chapter of the book of Nehemiah last week, and uh, I intended to get through chapter two and didn't make it. And it appears as if I will not make it again today, uh, because I want to go back to verse nine of chapter 1 and use it as a jumping off place again to go to some other things. Uh, he threatens to scatter the people and Nehemiah is reminding God of this here in a prayer. Uh, and God, He's reminding God that he said, if you transgress, I'll scatter you. And then the positive part, verse 9, but if you turn to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from there and will bring them to the place that I have chosen to set my name there. <clears throat> now, in a brief review, uh, remember last week we went to some scriptures in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy 4 is a reminder that we were to consider these things in the latter days, the things that are written in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Uh, Leviticus 26.33, where he said the land would become desolate if we sinned. Keep that in mind. The land would become desolate. That means people wouldn't be there. Deuteronomy 12. I think I'll turn back. I want to emphasize one point back here in Deuteronomy for a moment. We went there last week, uh, and I won't spend much time here, but uh, let's notice something in line with um, the place God places his name. Uh, chapter 12, verse 5 of Deuteronomy, But to the place which eternal your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even to his habitation, shall you seek, and there you shall come. So in one of the tribes of Israel, he said he would place his name, and that would be his dwelling place. Now, throughout the scriptures, and I won't go to a bunch to prove this, but I, I think you will recognize it, uh, he has always desired to be in Zion and Jerusalem. Uh, that's pretty clear in many, many, many scriptures. So wherever Zion and Jerusalem are is where God would dwell. Okay? Keep that thought in mind. But he doesn't pin it down here is an interesting point. He says, in one of your tribes, uh, verse 11, uh, let's see. When you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which eternal your God gives you to inherit, when he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safely, in safety, then there shall be a place which eternal your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. There shall you bring all that I command you. Now, let's go on to verse uh, 14. But in the place which the eternal shall choose, and one of your tribes reiterates that. Verse 18. But you must eat them before the eternal your God in the place which the eternal your God shall choose. I might remind you, it says in Zechariah, that they'll all come up to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Zechariah 14. So he places his name in Jerusalem. And that at the time was in the tribe of Judah, right? Judah, Jerusalem. 
I say at the time, because we're going to look at some things that might be interesting. So it's this one place, verse 21. If the place which the eternal your God has chosen to put his name there be too far from you, you shall kill of your herd and of your flock which the eternal has given you, as I have commanded you, and you shall eat in your gates whatsoever your soul desires. And in passing, I think that we should recognize that this is limiting. Okay? God is going to choose a place in one of the tribes, and he's going to dwell there, and he says, go there to keep the feasts. Now, if you can't go there, he does not say, choose for yourself an alternative place. He gives us only one option. Either keep it in the place he chooses, that can be determined where, and if you can't go there, keep it at home. There is no alternative to that. Only two places we are authorized to keep the feasts of God. Where he dwells, in the place he chooses, in one of our tribes, or at home. Maybe we have taken license and worldwide over the years and set up peace sites in a lot of places, and maybe God did not approve that. Maybe that's one of the reasons that he was unhappy in Isaiah 1 about our feasts. Because they were not his feasts, maybe they were our feasts. Not only in when, calendar being wrong, but in where, not being where God said his name, or at home, and in how we kept them. Not putting God first and coming to worship the king. So a little insight there, again from Deuteronomy 12.5, that we certainly must consider. Now, I talked some and postulated somewhat last week that perhaps since God began uh, the work of the end time in this nation, America, and then it did spread, as Ezekiel 17 seems to indicate, around the world, its branches went everywhere, but he did start it in the southwest United States. Uh, well, actually, in the northwest in, in uh, Oregon, but very quickly moved it to the southwest. And that is where it resided <clears throat> throughout its recent history until it began to get under different leadership and shrivel and die, as Ezekiel 17 said it would do. So that's where he began it, and that's where he did the majority of the work of the end time was from Pasadena. It had offices elsewhere, but the primary work was done there. And I postulated that perhaps since he began it in the southwestern United States with the former temple, that he would also go there with the latter temple, southwestern United States, not Pasadena, because it's a city, and he says that the end time work has to be done in the wilderness, the desert, and the mountains, not in the city. They were to leave the cities and go dwell in the desert. All right? Now, I want to go back to Jeremiah 9. I've looked at this one and, and brought it up several times, but I want to do it today in context because it will tell us a whole lot more than just reading what we read in verse 11 about Jerusalem being desolate. Notice the end of... <clears throat> Uh, verse 9, well, verse 14, really, in, of uh, chapter 8, Jeremiah 8, 14. Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves. 
And let us enter the defense cities and let us be silent there. Well, which cities are going to be defended? We're to be in towns without walls, Zechariah 2 says. Well, I think this may be talking about God's defense, not our own. Because God's people are a scattered remnant and we're told very clearly in other scriptures we're to get out of the cities and go dwell in the field. So the defensed cities or towns might be the ones that God is defending with his wall of fire, which he talks about. And let us be silent there, for the eternal our God has put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the eternal. So even as we have begun to move away from the cities and out into the desert and so on, God has caused us basically to be silent here, has he not? We're not out proclaiming things widely and loudly. Uh, basically, fairly silent. Nobody hears much about us or of us or knows much if we're a part of this. And we've been given water of gall to drink, have we not? Uh, we still have the bitterness of the separation. The gathering has not occurred. We're still fighting to survive with our jobs in this world. And we're separated from our children, our brothers, our friends in the church because we have sinned against the eternal. And we have to consider that. The reason we have our problems is because of the sins of we have committed. The whole church is spewed out because of that and we along with it. We looked for peace, but no good came, and for a time of health, and behold, trouble. So let's apply that to ourselves. Others can apply it to themselves as they see fit, but let's apply it to ourselves and see if it fits. We came here hoping for healing, hoping for peace and safety, and yet those have been slow to come, haven't they? And perhaps some have even given up because, hey, you know, we haven't gotten all those blessings from God that were talked about. Well, I think we've had a lot of blessings and a lot of insight and understanding given to us, but we still have our physical ailments and maladies and difficulties, and it seems we only get enough intervention from God to barely keep us going at the moment. So it's still pretty hard. And then the snorting of horses was heard from uh, Dan. They were the northernmost tribe of Israel and there the trouble would come first. So we as God's people have begun to realize we need to separate from this nation that is about to be destroyed, and then it brings that up. The snorting of horses was heard in Dan, so the king of the north will be coming to destroy this, what I think is probably the current king of the north, king of Babylon, and the whole land trembled. So God's people would still be in a situation where the blessings have not fully come, and yet we're beginning to hear the drums of war uh, as nations rise against us. And more and more we are now being talked about. Even Ecuador the other day said when Bush wanted to renew the lease of our military base in Ecuador, some may not even know where Ecuador is, it's that important. And Ecuador said, we're not renewing your lease for your air base or your military base, whatever it is there, until you give us a base in America. Think about that a moment. A little country about that big around called Ecuador thumbs its nose at us. 
is our reputation going downhill or what? And then he says he's going to send all kinds of trouble. Verse 19, Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people. So God's people are going to be still in a problem situation. The drums of war are going to begin to come very loudly. And then it says, Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people because of them that dwell in a far country. We're still scattered and dwell in countries all over. The church has been scattered. Is not the Lord in Zion? People begin to wonder, what's happening? Why are we scattered? Where's the church? What happened? And yet here is a statement and a question. Is not the eternal in Zion? Now is God in Jerusalem in the Middle East? What does he call Jerusalem at the end time? Sodom and Egypt. If he turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt for looking back on Sodom, I don't think he wants to be there. It is that the valid Zion in Jerusalem. This is a question I think we must address. Is not her king in her? Will God not come to Zion? Will not he, her leader, be with her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? We have our idols today, and we have some really strange vanities today, if you look at culture as a whole and the things we get vain about. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Interesting, isn't it? A little bit of a timing of the year here. The end of the summer is over, harvest is finished, and yet we're not saved. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? If God is going to be with her, why isn't she healed? So we're looking at a time just prior to that and the feeling that probably a lot in the church has. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. We see all the trouble coming. We know that this nation, as an empire, is about to end. And we've already seen the demise of the church. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they be all adulterers and an assembly of treacherous men. Don't a lot in the church who sigh and cry for the abominations around them wish they could just get away from all that is wrong. I heard a quote just yesterday from someone who spoke of us out here who are still out in the world, who haven't come here. And they said, you just don't realize how blessed you are to be where you are doing what you're doing. As we get somewhat apart from the world, and things do go better here than they do in the rest of the world. I mean, yes, we have gall to drink in a way because things have not improved to the point we're looking for yet, but we still have it pretty good. Our children are safe in this community. There are not molesters running through the property. We have... Peace here, 
except, except what ripples we ourselves cause among ourselves. But basically we have peace. But a lot of people don't know what to do. They say, I just wish I had a place to go far away. Well, maybe God has given us a place in the wilderness far away. Maybe a lot of those people are saying, I wish I had a way to get away. And they'll have a place and an opportunity to go. Let's read on and see if the Scriptures don't bear that out. They bend their tongues like their bow for lies, but they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. For they, have proceed, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they don't know me, says the Eternal. So God says, there aren't very many who are valiant for the truth. And they just go from evil thing to evil thing. Take you heed, every one of his neighbor, and trust you not in any brother. For every brother will utterly supplant, and every neighbor will walk with slanders. What did Matthew 24 say? At the end of the time, sin would abound, and the love of many would wax cold, and people would betray one another. So it's describing an attitude that Matthew 24 certainly brings out for the end time. They will deceive everyone his neighbor, and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies and weary themselves to commit iniquity. They work overtime, wear themselves out to find ways to get ahead and commit iniquity. Your habitation is in the midst of deceit. This is a lying, cheating, conniving, greedy nation we live in today. Materialism is the big thing. That's what everybody's after. And that's what's going to, it's quickly being taken away is the wealth. That's what people have wanted. It's an idol. Therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts, Behold, I will melt them and try them, for how shall I do for the daughter of my people? Now, this could have been said about Israel a long time ago, right? Jeremiah wrote this a long time ago. So it could be both a historical thing and a prophetic thing at the same time, couldn't it? We've said over and over again that History, or ultimately prophecy, repeats over and over because men are basically the same and human nature has always been the same. <coughs> so Israel has gone through the sin-repentance cycle a lot of times. Therefore, thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will melt them and try them. Uh, they speak deceit. They speak peaceably to their neighbors in verse 8, but in heart he lays his weight. Uh, stabs in the back. Shall I not visit them for these things, says the Eternal? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? For the mountains will I pick up a weeping and wailing, and for the habitations of the wilderness a lamentation, because they are burned up, so that none can pass through them. Neither can men hear the voice of the cattle. Both the fowl of the heavens and the beast are fled, they are gone. Notice that expression, none can pass through them. We're going to see that again in the book of Zechariah. I want to point it out here. It's the same phrase Zechariah uses, and definitely an end-time prophecy. So, historically, he's speaking of a land that is going to be dried up, burned up, and you won't even hear cattle. Both the fowls of the heaven and the beasts are fled, they are gone. Now, now we get to verse 11. And I will make Jerusalem heaps or piles of rubble, 
and a den of dragons, or New King James says jackals, or lizards, and I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. No one will live there. Now, in the history of Jerusalem in the Middle East, I do not know of a time when there weren't some people there. Now, I go back and read this because we're going to go to Zechariah in a little bit, and we're going to see some very similar phraseology. But here he's talking about Jerusalem and the cities of Judah being desolate without an inhabitant. Now, I want us to read the next verse because I think it says a great deal. Who is the wise man that may understand this? In other words, the statement just made in verse 11 is somehow very, very difficult to understand. Okay? Remember Matthew 24 when it says, to flee from the abomination that makes desolate? And then in parentheses it says, he who hears, let him understand. In other words, he's quoting Daniel 9 and 11, and he's saying that what is, and uh, yeah, 9 and 11 primarily, and what he's saying there is that that prophecy of Daniel is something that is very difficult to understand, and you have to listen carefully. It's not something that will be obvious. Now the Protestants all have their explanation of Daniel 9 and Daniel 11, and so on and so forth. But God says, now wait a minute, this is going to require special understanding. Okay? Now he uses the same situation here in Jeremiah 9. He says, Jerusalem will be desolate and the cities of Judah. Who is the wise man that may understand this? How can this be understood? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Eternal has spoken that he may declare it? In other words, there has to be a desolate Jerusalem. There has to be an area known as Judah that will be desolate in the cities thereof. And that is certainly not true of the Middle East today. Jerusalem is builded. It has its walls. They've been torn down off and on over the years, but it has never been desolate. Nor have all the cities around it been desolate. That being the case, what in the world is this talking about? How can you understand it, if that not be the case? Now, to whomever this understanding is given, it must be declared. So it's a hard saying, difficult to understand, but someone is going to understand it, and they must declare it. Now, God does nothing except that he first reveals it through his servants, the prophets. Amos 3, verse 7 or 8. Now, God is not going to do anything unless he's got it written here in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the minor prophets, and the other prophecies like Moses and Psalms and so on. It's here. But some of it's hard to understand. Some of it's hard to grasp. Some of it simply cannot be understood unless and until somebody opens somebody's mind to see it. Now he says of Cyrus in Isaiah 44 and 45, 
that he will take him by the hand and break the bars of iron and brass, that he will make the straight places plain for him and show him what? The hidden treasures of God, and that that man will then say, the foundation of the temple has to be laid and Jerusalem has to be built. So that's the message that an end-time Cyrus has to proclaim, and it is what God says he will do. Now, if there is a Jerusalem apart from that Jerusalem in the Middle East that has never been a den only of dragons and the city's never desolate, then there must be another somewhere. Okay? Is that logical? And not only that, it will be very, very difficult to understand and to grasp that that could be the case. To whom has God spoken that he may declare it? For what the land perishes and is burned up like a wilderness that none passes through. Did we not read about none passing through? And I said, you'll see that in Zechariah. You also see it here in Jeremiah 9. Interesting expression. You'll see it again when we get to Zechariah. The Lord says, because they've forsaken my law which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice, neither walk therein, but have walked after the imagination of their own heart and after Balaam which their fathers taught. Goes on and down says, I'll scatter them among the heathen in verse 16. Now notice, Jerusalem is going to exist until the end. Remember Revelation 11, when the great earthquake comes and the two witnesses, when our two witnesses are killed? and a tenth part of the city falls, that means the city's going to still be there, right? The Jerusalem, whichever one that's talking about. It's the place where our Lord was killed, known spiritually as Sodom and Egypt. We've got to put this story together. <clears throat> Talks about the mourning women, the churches, verse 17, and the physical women of this nation as their homes and families are torn apart. It's both spiritual and physical. says, our tears will be running down, verse 18, verse 19, for a voice of wailing is heard out of Zion, how are we spoiled? We are greatly confounded because we have forsaken the land, because our dwellings have cast us out. Now, Zion pictures Israel and Judah, and are our houses not now casting us out in this land? We have a great mortgage and credit crunch and people are being thrust out of their houses and it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. God says in the end time that we will build houses but not dwell in them. So we've been building houses very rapidly the last 10 years and God says they're going to be taken away and our houses will cast us out. Those who hold the paper on our houses will cast us out. So it's not necessarily that we just have to leave our house because we wanted to move somewhere else, but we'll be cast out of them. That's what a foreclosure is all about. Yet hear the word of the Eternal, O you women, 
And let your ear receive the word of his mouth, and teach your daughters wailing, and every one her neighbor lamentation for death is come. To our windows, and has entered into our palaces to cut off the children. They call them make mansions, palaces, works, uh, building a lot bigger houses than we did 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Verse 22, speak, thus says the eternal, even the carcasses of men shall fall as dung upon the open field, and as the handful after the harvestmen, and none shall gather them. Just like he says that the death of the people in our country is just going to be like following a herd of cattle through the field, and the dead are going to be lying just like cow droppings on the earth. Thus says the Eternal, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches. These things won't help. But let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Eternal, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. I think it's interesting here that he, in this context, it seems strange in a way. You go on down, he talks about, uh, well, let's go on and read it. Behold, the days come, says the eternal, verse 25, that I will punish all them which are circumcised with the uncircumcised. In other words, those who are true spiritual people of God, true church, who are circumcised of the heart, are going to be punished with the people of this land who are uncircumcised in heart. They'll be left behind in the tribulation. That's what this is referring to. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Ammon and Moab and all that are in the utmost corners that dwell in the wilderness, for all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. So all these Gentile nations are uncircumcised physically, but Israel is uncircumcised in the heart, the land of America today. This is a land that basically uh, does circumcise the babies but it is a land that is uncircumcised in heart. does not turn to God in that way. Now notice the turn here, immediately in chapter 10. Hear ye the word which the Eternal spoke to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Eternal, are not the way of the heathen, be not dismayed at the signs of heaven. And then he goes on to describe the Christmas tree. What, what does that have to do with it? Did we not read back here just a little while ago, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved? So he's talking about the fall of the year after the harvest is in. You know, we might have thought Pentecost or somewhere along there, trumpets would have been delivered, but no. Harvest is gone. It's over. We're not delivered. Those of you who are hoping we'd have deliverance at the Feast Tabernacles, sorry, didn't happen. Now he's talking about the end of December, suddenly. Harvest is over. What's the next big thing the world's looking to? Christmas. I just have a question here. Do some of these events that are going to happen, happen in the winter, maybe around Christmas time? I don't know. And I'm not saying, if so, that it would be this year necessarily. I'm just saying that this context is talking about the time after the fall harvest. And then he goes right into, don't learn the way of the heathen at Christmas time. Describes the Christmas tree in detail here. 
And remember, too, and I think it is it in this context, but several places in Hosea and in Joel 2, it talks about pray for the latter rain at the time of the latter rain, and in the first month you'll be blessed and so on. Um, is there a year coming up where we'll be expecting something and nothing happens, and then don't learn the way of the heathen, God is going to destroy them. Notice verse 17 here after it gets done describing the Christmas tree. Uh, we'll go to verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. Not Satan, not Baal, not Santa Claus. But God is the living God and an everlasting king. Then he goes on down and talks about his power and how man is vain. <clears throat> In verse 17, a curious one, says, Gather up your wares out of the land, O inhabitant of the fortress, or pack your bags and get ready to leave. Where is God's fortress? Where is his refuge? Zion. For thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will sling out the inhabitants of land at this once, and I will distress them that they may find it so. So we have a fall time, then we have Christmas mentioned. I don't know that it has anything to do with the timing at all, but it could. It's just a question. And then he proclaims that he is God and the man is vain. He says, Gather up your wares, because I'm about to sling out the inhabitants of the land at this once. And will distress them that they may find it so. Woe is me for my hurt. My wound is grievous, but I said truly this is a grief, and I must bear it. My tabernacle is spoiled, and all my cords are broken. My children are gone forth of me, and they are not. There is none to stretch forth my tent anymore, anymore to set up my curtains, for the pastors are become brutish. So he brings it down to the church. The true ministry, I guess, and probably also it would include the false ministry of this world, because it's nearly always dual. For the pastors are become brutish and have not sought the eternal, therefore they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. That reminds me of Zechariah 11, where we're going next. Well, not to chapter 11 next, but to Zechariah, and we'll get to chapter 11. So there is a tie-in here in the phraseology, in the timing, and into whom it is talking. Their flocks will be scattered. Behold, the noise of the brute is come, and a great commotion out of the north country. Remember it said, from Dan, northernmost tribe, to make the cities of Judah desolate and a den of dragons. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself, it is not in man that walks to direct his steps. And then a plea to correct, because God is going to pour out his fury. All right, let's go to Jeremiah 30. We're going to see some more here that I think ties in very naturally with what we've been reading to this point. Chapter 30 begins, verse 3, For lo, the days come, says the Eternal, I'll bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah. He's going to turn it around for us, uh, speaking of the church first, later on the nation, but we're concerned here with the church. Isaiah 52 talks about the two witnesses getting together at the time that God turns it around for us. I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. I think he's talking to the church here, his people, and he's going to take them back to the place 
that God gave to their fathers. Wonder where that was. And these are the words that the Eternal spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. Thus says the Eternal, we've heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. And in this land today, we're hearing a voice of trembling. Not just among church people anymore, but now analysts and economists and military people all over are beginning to question where this nation is headed. And you see all kinds of articles about the fall of America and how our dollar is doomed and going down the tubes and the American empire is about over. You read that just out in the news on Yahoo and on the conspiracy nut networks as well. But it isn't just there anymore. It's right out in the mainstream. They see it falling apart. It's a time of Jacob's trouble, verse 7. So that shows it's right at the end when Jacob's trouble comes. It shall come to pass in that day, verse 8, says the eternal of God, that I will break his yoke from off your neck. Remember Isaiah 52, just before the two witnesses come together in verses 7 and 8. It says, break the yoke of Babylon off your neck, and then we know we have to have help having that yoke broken. But God is going to break it. It will burst your bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve his people, the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up to them. Now, this isn't the original David being spoken of here in terms of the church. Uh, there are many types at the end, and the leadership that God raises up, he also refers to as David, uh, because the people need to be led as David led, with, and he had his roots as a shepherd. He was gentle. He was kind. He did not run around with a sword among his own people. Now, he did run around with a sword with those outside Israel, but not those within. Because this is talking about the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, at the end of Jacob's trouble, of course, the original David is going to be resurrected. But in the meantime, we have types like Elijah and Moses, John the Baptist, all those things come to, to a head and come together at the end. Verse, six, uh, verse 10, Therefore fear you not, O my servant Jacob, says eternal, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for I will save you from afar off and your seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid, for I am with you. And I will not make a full end of you. I'll correct you in measure. He chastens all the sons whom he loves, Hebrews 12. Um, and he says you don't have any healing medicines but let's go on down to verse 17. I don't want to spend all day here. For I will restore health to you, and I will heal you of your wounds, says the Eternal, because they called you an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeks after. His people, at the end, are going to be healed. And they are a people that others will say of them, This is the Zion whom no man seeks after. Now, they may seek a Zion, and there are those Zionists who all want to go back to the Middle East. There are those in the church who want to go there. But maybe there's a different Zion that no man seeks. Oddballs? Weird? Strange? Perhaps. Remember, this whole thing is something that is going to be very hard to understand. And God is going to have to give wisdom to know 
So we have to consider the scriptures very carefully and ask for his guidance if we intend to know. So there is going to be a Zion that no man seeks after, doesn't want, is repugnant to them. Thus says the eternal, verse 18, Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places, and the city shall be builded upon her own heap, and the palace shall remain after the manner thereof. So this is talking about a time when Jerusalem will be builded upon her own pile of rubble. Did we not read in Daniel 9 that there is going to be a command issued for Jerusalem to be built, and it will be done in troublous times, and that shortly thereafter will come the abomination of desolation. Seventy weeks. Amazing, isn't it? This places Jeremiah 30 with Daniel 9. And out of them... Now, back up just a second. Jerusalem is over there, isn't it, in the Middle East? doesn't need to be built upon its own heaps. It's there. The wall's there. city's there. The new city is all around it. It's established. It's there. Well, then which one is going to be built upon its own heaps just before it's destroyed? That's a good question. Do we have a good answer? Perhaps we do. All right, now notice what the attitude will be when Jerusalem is built out of her own heaps. And out of them, verse 19, shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of them that make merry, and I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small. Read Isaiah 54, right after the two witnesses come together in Isaiah 52. Isaiah 53 tells us about Christ and his sacrifice and all that he did in shedding his blood, which happened at Passover time, and then comes a blessing and enlarge your tents and make, you know, stretch your stakes out because you're going to have a lot of people. Ties in very closely with this. Remember the fasts of, of, uh, that we've been having, the monthly fasts and how they'll be turned to joy? Hang on, we'll be in Zechariah here in a little bit. Their children also shall be as before time, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all that oppress them. God is going to take his people, going to gather her children, and they won't be oppressed anymore. He will take care of them. Their nobles shall be of themselves. Their leadership will come from within. There is a ministry in the church of God today that teaches that the two witnesses are going to be physical Jews. He doesn't have a clue about the prophecies. Their governor shall proceed from the midst of them. Uh, Zerubbabel is typical of Moses, who was the governor of the civil nation of Israel. He's not the high priest, that's Joshua's job. But Zerubbabel is then in the place of Moses. I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach to me. For who is this that engaged his heart to approach to me, says the Eternal? Who's going to be brave enough to go to God under the circumstances that we're going to be in and under in this nation. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So our physical leader is going to approach God, and God is going to be pleased with him, and his hands will finish the temple. 
Behold, the whirlwind of the eternal goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. This isn't millennial. This is before then. There's no whirlwind in the millennium. It shall fall with pain upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the eternal shall not return until he have done it and until he have performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days you shall consider it. We read that in Deuteronomy. This isn't a prophecy just for Israel as Jeremiah wrote. This is a prophecy of the latter days. If there's any question of that, that should dispel it. In the latter days, you shall understand it would be a better translation. We are the latter day saints. The saints of the latter day are beginning to understand this. The Mormons are not the latter day saints, at least not of God. They may be the saints of something else, but we won't go there much more right now. Now notice, at the same time, in the latter days, not in the millennium, this is a millennium, at the same time, says the Eternal, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Now that's not referring to all of physical Israel, because that is millennial. So this has to be referring to people from all over Israel, whom God is going to bring together. Thus says the Eternal, the people which were left of the sword, the spiritual sword that's come on the church, found grace, or pardon, the blessing of God, in the wilderness. Now that is not where physical Israel finds grace. They find it at the new Jerusalem, which comes down at the beginning of the millennium. It will be in a place that has been a wilderness. Yes, but it will not be a wilderness. This is talking about the people of God, the remnant of God at the end, and where they find pardon, forgiveness, grace, and the good favor of God is in the wilderness. Even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. Remember that Zion, Jerusalem, and Israel, and Judah, and Hebrews 12, are references to the church. Never forget that. That is a, an incredible key to understanding the prophecies. All right, let's go to verse 3. The eternal, has appeared, oh, the eternal has appeared of old, and he's saying, Yes, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. God never quit loving us. He just turned his face for us because he promised because he couldn't stand the way we were or are. Notice, though, verse 4. Again, I will build you. And you shall be built, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tabrets and shall go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Our fasts will be turned into feasts of joy. Okay? Zechariah again. You shall yet. It isn't over yet. You shall yet. It's still going to happen. Grim as things look in this nation today and in this world. You shall yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. Samaria were the northern ten tribes. Interesting, it's not talking about just Judah here, is it? It's talking about Samaria. Who was in Samaria? The ten tribes. This is going to get narrowed down very shortly to one of those tribes. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. There will be plenty. Common you know, before, 
It was hard to find the good things. There weren't many, but then it'll become common. For there shall be a day that the watchman upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise you, and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. God chooses to dwell in Zion. There's going to come a time of trouble, and then there's going to come a turnaround where God is going to bless his remnant faithful church, and someone is going to stand up and say, Arise, let's go to Zion where God is. Now is God going to be in that Jerusalem that is there today that is called Sodom and Egypt? Or somewhere else? A different Zion. For thus says the Eternal, Sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Publish you, praise you, and say... O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Doesn't he say he's going to save a remnant for himself? Isaiah 1, Haggai, all through these scriptures that we've read in the last several years. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coasts of the earth. And with them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and her that travails with child together, a great company shall return there. Zechariah 4, Zechariah 6, Isaiah 35, the lame walking, the blind seeing, giving us the, deer, the legs of deer. It's all talking about the same time. It's talking about the remnant church at the end time. They shall come with weeping, and with supplication will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, we all know, historically, Judah was the firstborn. He's talking about coming to Zion in this context, and he says, look, I'm switching the firstborn from Judah to Ephraim. Why? Because I believe America, not Britain, and I'm saying this with more force than I have before, I've said maybe we're Ephraim and Britain is Manasseh. And in one sense, does it really matter Oh, yes, it might, because Zion, it appears, will be an Ephraim. God changes the birth order for his own purposes here. Arise, let us go up to Zion. I am the father to all Israel, but Ephraim is my firstborn. Where did he begin his end-time work? This land. Where did he call the first fruits, or those who will be the firstborn following Christ? This land. This is where he started it all. I believe, as I stand here today, and I may see it prove more and more, that we are indeed a company of nations or 50 states bound together as Ephraim. And this is where God has begun his work. And that's where he's going to continue his work. It's where he started it. Why else? Now, if that indeed were the land of Judah in the Middle East, and that's where Jerusalem and Zion are, he would go there. But he chose to work in a nation that we, even in the Church of God, consider to be Manasseh or possibly Ephraim. And that question came up 25 years ago or more. But the fact that the work today 
That's where God said Ephraim would be. And it sounds like Zion is in it. This must be the place. Is this the original land of promise? He says, I'll take you back to the land that I gave to their fathers. Chapter 30, verse 4. May very well be. Verse 10, hear the word of the eternal, O you nations, declare it to the coastlands far off, and say, he that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Doesn't it say in Zechariah 6, they'll come from far away to build in the temple of God when he gathers his people together. At the end, under the two witnesses, not under Christ in the millennium. Okay? For the eternal has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he, Therefore, they, Jacob, people of Israel, shall come and sing in the height of Zion. This is a tall place. That one in the Middle East is barely, if you could even call it a hill, outside the city wall. And shall flow together to the goodness of the eternal for wheat, for wine, for oil, for the young of the flock and of the herd. And their souls shall be as a watered garden, and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Isaiah 54 describes this precisely and in more detail. And it says God will preserve us from our enemies. So it's not millennial because there will be no enemies around then. Christ will have knocked them all flat. So this is before then. It says they will rise up against you, but they won't prevail. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow. I hope we make it to Zechariah today because there it talks about old men and old women and children playing and rejoicing in the streets before Christ returns and hits the Mount of Olives in chapter 13 of Zechariah, before then. And I will satiate the soul of the priest with fatness and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Eternal. Meantime, there's a voice of lamentation and bitter weeping of Rachel over her children and the situation. But God is going to turn it around. Verse 16 says, The tears will be dried up, your work shall be rewarded, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. And there is hope in your end, says the Eternal, that your children may come again to their own border and be gathered from all over. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. Ephraim again, bemoaning himself. And it's talking about the gathering of God's people, his remnant from around the world. Where to? Ephraim. I don't think we're going to Britain. Surely after that I was turned, I repented, and after that I was instructed. I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spoke against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, says the Eternal. Thought just popped into my head. Happens once in a while. Usually oozes in, but this one popped. We've talked about grace in the wilderness. We've talked about deserts and mountains. How many of you have visited the deserts and the wilderness and the mountains of Great Britain? I'm going to see my hands. They don't exist there. And yet the whole context here is about Ephraim. That land is green all over 
It doesn't have any real mountains, and it certainly doesn't have any desert and wilderness, unless you want to talk about spiritual wilderness. But we've got both here. Verse 21, set you up waymarks, make them high heaps. Set your heart toward the highway, even the way which you went. Turn again, O virgin of Israel, turn again to these, your cities. Set up waymarks, show people how to get out of the cities, how to come to the wilderness where God is going to deliver his people. How long will you go about, O you backsliding daughter? For the eternal has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Usually the man courts the woman, but... God's going to turn it around, and the church is going to begin to court the leaders that God sets. Thus says the eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, verse 23, is yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah and in the cities thereof, when I shall bring again their captivity. The Lord bless you, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. Now, if this land, America, were the original promised land, then all the tribes were here, right? And if the original Jerusalem was in this land, then the original Judah was, as well as the rest of the tribes. But then God caused Israel to be moved out of here, and Jerusalem and the cities of Judah became desolate, as Jeremiah tells us, and that this would be hard to understand. So now we have Israel in northwest Europe and Britain, we have them in South Africa, we have them in Australia, New Zealand, scattered around in different parts of the earth. They're not in the original promised land. God is going to bring them back to that promised land. So here he talks about Ephraim in a land of wilderness, deserts, and mountains, and that Judah is there as well. So within the prophetic framework, this land would just be one tribe whom he calls Ephraim, and he makes it the firstborn. It is where he does his work, among Ephraimites. But that does not mean the original Judah and Jerusalem were not here, because all the tribes were wherever the original Judah and Jerusalem were, whether Middle East or whether here, right? So this is talking about the prophetic in-time Ephraim, where the original Judah and Jerusalem, I started to say were, but are or will be discovered. Verse 24, And there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all the cities thereof together husbandmen and they that go forth with flocks. Doesn't it say that Jerusalem will be built as towns without walls with much men and cattle there? Small and large cattle, flocks, herds, and so on. It's talking about, I believe, the area we're living in. Verse 27, Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. Zechariah 2, all over again. Uh, verse 29, In those days they shall say no more, The fathers have eaten a sour grape, the children's edge, teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Uh, Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will make them, verse 31, a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I ask you, where did that new covenant begin in the end time? Now, it began with the apostles, the prophets, I mean the apostles in the New Testament church in Acts 2. I think there is a case to be made 
that that also was in this country in the original Jerusalem before it was made desolate. The people all moved out. But in the end time, he established that new covenant with the end time church. Where did he do it? In Judah and Jerusalem in the Middle East? No. So far as I know, there was never one, anyone baptized over there unless they just wanted to be baptized in the Jordan and travel from here or, or New Zealand or somewhere to get baptized in the Jordan. Now that may have happened. But God has not started any kind of a significant work in that area in the end time. just hasn't happened. isn't there. The only ones there who may have God's Spirit basically are those who have moved there thinking that's the place to go at the end. There are a few of those there today. But that new covenant in the end time was made right in this land with Herbert Armstrong and his wife and it spread to us and eventually it spread around the world. But it started here. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband to them, says the Eternal. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Eternal, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and they will be my and will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 38. I'm skipping down. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that the city shall be built to the Eternal from the tower of Hananiel unto the gate of the corner. There's Daniel 9 again. There's Nehemiah. The wall in Jerusalem being built at the end time, in troublous times, just before the abomination of desolation, abomination of desolation is set up. So here we find another corroboration that in the end time Jerusalem must be built from scratch, from its heaps, with the walls going up and everything. From the tower of Hananiel to the gate of the corner, the measuring line shall yet go over, forth over against it upon the hill of Gareb, and shall compass about Goath, and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes, and all the fields of the brook of Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east. I take it that's from gate 1 through 12 all the way around shall be holy to the eternal, it shall not be plucked up nor thrown down anymore forever. So this is the final building of Jerusalem on this earth. Now, 10% of it will be destroyed in an earthquake at the time the two witnesses are killed and, the, and the, uh, thereafter the uh, first resurrection. And some of the inhabitants killed, 8,000 men, I think it says. It doesn't mean it won't be damaged. It doesn't mean that the... Uh, Gentiles might not tread upon it for 42 months, but once it is built, it is not going to be destroyed thereafter. But this is talking about the end time. Okay, let's stop there and go to Zechariah because I want to wrap this package up and I think I do have time to get back here and do it. I won't find it back there. Um, Zechariah 7 is where I want to pick this up. Now remember, Zechariah starts with, don't be like the former people. Uh, you've had 70 years, and I was a little displeased, and I got more upset. And he says, Jerusalem will be built at his towns without walls at the end, and God will come and dwell with us there. And he says he wants to inhabit Zion. So he's placed his name wherever this place is we're talking about, and that's the place all the people of the earth, will have to come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles unless the way is too far and they have to keep it at home. It's the only two places you can keep the Feast and do it the way God wants it done. Okay? 
Then in chapter 3 it talks about uh, Joshua and him being filthy and cleaned up and then the seven eyes of the stone, cornerstone of Christ being set before him. And in his day, this is before the millennium, every man will have his own vine and fig tree, last verse of chapter 3. Then in chapter 4 it talks about Joshua and Zerubbabel coming together and Zerubbabel had started the foundation of the temple that he would finish it and that those are the two candlesticks that feed all seven churches as per Revelation 11. So I'm setting a background. Chapter 5 talks about how uh, the church, as we knew it, and worldwide, is going to have a lead stuff in its mouth and be set on its own base by two unclean birds in the land of Babylon. I think the Tkachas did that. Two certainly unclean birds, spiritually. Chapter 6 talks about if we diligently obey, then people are going to come from all over the world to build the temple of God. So that sets the context. Everything in Zechariah up to this point, chapter 1 through 6, is talking about end-time events having to do with the two anointed ones of Revelation 11 and Zechariah 4.14, the two witnesses of God who will lead the building of the temple at the end time, as the story of Haggai very clearly shows. Okay? Let's get up to date on context here because if you still have doubt about some of these things, about people not passing through or traveling, about Ephraim, about all these things that we've just read in Jeremiah 8 and 9 and 30 and 31 and back in Deuteronomy and so on, if you're still thinking by any stretch of the imagination, this is talking about the millennium, let's read on. Because the things we read about then that I told you to keep in mind and remember, you're going to read about right here. And the context to this point has been the end-time church being rebuilt with the two witnesses at the end. Christ is not here on the earth yet. He's dwelling with us in Zion, he says in Zechariah 2, but he has not come in his glory. Whether he'll be there visibly, or as he was with Paul in the desert, or whether he will simply, his presence, be there and be known by a wall of fire and his protection remains to be seen. And I'll not argue that point at this time. So let's see then chapter 7 of Zechariah, if we can pull this together. It came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius. Now remember Haggai was set in the second year of Darius. So this is downstream a little bit in the same context of the temple being built at the end time. Now it goes back to the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, which we are uh, varying from at the moment, but we're going back to Nehemiah, <laughs> God willing. So this is in the same context then, time-wise, of Haggai and the first part of the book of Zechariah. Fourth year of King Darius, two years later, that the word of the Eternal came to Zechariah in the fourth day of the ninth month, even in Chislu. Uh, we're right near the ninth month now, aren't we? Uh, feast is in the seventh month, middle of it. Eighth, now, yeah, we're pretty close to that, so uh, whether that has any meaning or not, I don't know necessarily. It might some year, maybe not this year, okay? When they had sent to the house of God Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to pray before the Eternal and to speak to the priests which were in the house of the Eternal of hosts and to the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? So they, the Jews physically have been keeping the fasts of the months. And they said, Should I do this? Then came the word of the Eternal of hosts to me, saying, Speak to all the people of the land of the priests, saying, when you fasted, 
these 70 years, weren't you doing it to yourselves? Were you doing it for me? When we fasted as a church and worldwide, were we doing it so we might get blessings and so the work might be blessed? Are we really do, or were we really doing it for the sake of God and drawing near to Him? I asked the question because I think we had more. We need your blessings than we did in drawing near to God. Uh, when you did eat, verse 6, when you drank, did drink, did not you eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Should you not hear the words which the eternal has, has uh, cried by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity and the cities there and round about her when men inhabited the south and the plain? Should you not hear that? Because you're doing the same thing those people were doing, it says. And the word of the eternal came to Zechariah saying, Huh, the south and the plain. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus speaks the eternal of hosts, saying, now here, when you find yourself in these circumstances, here's what you need to do. If you're going to come through this shining brightly and alive and on your feet, here's what you need to do. Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. Oppress not the widow nor the fatherless, the stranger or the poor. Let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. It's real easy to remain selfish. It's real easy to hate. It's real easy to be annoyed by. It's real easy to be selfish. But God says, love your neighbor as yourself. But if I don't love myself, well, that's a different problem. But love your neighbor as yourself. We basically do love ourselves. Sometimes it just takes on a very, very selfish form of love. And it's self-worship and vanity and ego is what it amounts to. Yet they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the word which the eternal of hosts has sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. So God says, you're, you're in the same position you were anciently. And great wrath came. And we've seen his wrath come, haven't we? We've been scattered and spewed out. Therefore it has come to pass that as he cried and they would not hear, so they cried, and I would not hear, says the Eternal of hosts. Same deal as occurred. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them, that no man passed through nor returned. For they laid the pleasant land desolate. So God says that things will be in the end time just like they were then when I laid the land desolate and no man passed through. God, at some time in the past, wherever the true Jerusalem is, laid it desolate, made it the inhabitation of jackals, and no men passed through or came back. Isn't that interesting? But this, which clearly is an end-time prophecy before Christ comes, mentions the exact same things. That Israel, that, that Jerusalem over there, as Gordon pointed out, has always been a place where the trade routes crossed, where men have passed through and come back to. But here it says it was a land that was desolate, that no man passed through nor returned. Didn't pass through back and forth, didn't go back to it. 
Now, where is that? That historically cannot apply to the Middle Eastern Jerusalem. Ever since it's been there, it has been the center of trade routes. And people have been back and forth and returned there. There is a Jerusalem somewhere on this earth. The man has not continued to pass through nor returned to. It is desolate, a land of lizards and jackals and rabbits. Again, the word of the eternal host came to me saying, Thus says the eternal of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. So it's speaking of the same Zion where the desolation was. doesn't change. Thus says the eternal, I am returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So wherever the original Zion and Jerusalem are is where God is going to be. And that is where he has placed his name. And that is where we should keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now this may have, implica I know it has implications here at the end. I believe that we are a beginning village or a preparation place for that Jerusalem without walls. So he's placed his name on the villages he's going to raise up at the end for his people, and he calls that Jerusalem. And he says, I'll come and dwell there in Zechariah 2, where he says to, to build those. So if this is the first of those villages, this village qualifies. Now if of those villages, and I think from looking at different scriptures now there will be seven, if one of those is the original site of Jerusalem, then maybe that is the village of Jerusalem that we will all go to once that is discovered and defined and built instead of this one. Zion and Jerusalem are nearby together, so it is in, at least in that area of the original Zion and the original Jerusalem, wherever it may be. That's where God is going to dwell, in the middle of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth. Uh, the Middle Eastern Jerusalem in the end time, right now, is not known as a city of truth. And it is not destined to. I think that it is a false city, a counterfeit of Satan, and probably the end time false prophet will set up his headquarters because he will be a false Christ and a false city and a false land. And that is the Zion people will look to. But the real Zion they will not look to. We read that. Verse 4, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, There shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem. He says from the former temple in Haggai that there will be old men who will be able to compare the first temple with the latter temple. And here we are. We always thought this was talking about the new Jerusalem. Not in the context. It's talking about before Christ ever returns here. The time of the two witnesses. There shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem. The street and the wall has to be built back in troublous times. Daniel. And it'll be a happy time. 
and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. God is going to bring an aging church to this Jerusalem. Old men and women. Maybe they'll have deer's legs, but they're still going to be old. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. That's not millennial, that's before them. Have you seen a hint yet of Christ returning in this context? Not there, is it? You read the same thing back in Jeremiah. Little different words. Thus says the eternal of hosts, If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, in these days, not those days, these days that we're talking about here, should it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the eternal? Thus says the eternal of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east, from the west. I will bring them. They shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. All things will be restored, and we're going to have the truth. All of it. Thus says the eternal of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you that hear, in these days. Who does he tell to be strong, fear not, be of good courage, and work? Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, the people, and the time the remnant comes together to build the temple in the days of the two witnesses before they're killed. These words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. Zerubbabel, the leader of the two witnesses, is the one who has to finish building the temple. So it's talking about this time. For before these days there was no hire for man or hire for beast, neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction. For I said, all men, every one against his neighbor. That's talking about the church and ultimately, of course, the nation. But this is talking about the church in particular here. But now I will not be to the residue of this people as in the former days, says the eternal of hosts, when I punished. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit. In the days of Joshua, remember, every man will have his own vine and fig tree. There'll be plenty. The vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. Vine, fig tree, plenty. Read Isaiah 54 and 55 again. For thus says the eternal of hosts, as I thought to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the eternal of hosts, and I repented not. So again have I thought in these days to do well to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear you not. Fear not, be strong, be of good courage, and work. Anybody want to do some transcripts? And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. And love no false oath, for all these are things that I hate. And the word of the eternal said, came to me, and he said, These fasts, we read it before, are going to be turned into feasts of joy. Remember what we read in Jeremiah about joy and feasting and happiness and dancing? Thus says the eternal of hosts, verse 20, It shall yet come to pass that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many cities. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the eternal and to seek the eternal of hosts. I will go also. Let you and I go up and worship God. Yes, many people and strong nations or peoples shall come to seek the eternal of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Eternal. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, not one that says he's a Jew but isn't. Remember Philadelphia Church in Revelation 3? 
There will come those who say they're Jews and aren't. He who is a Jew they will take hold of and says, we will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. People are going to come from all over the world because they're going to hear that God has turned it around and begun to bless his people, and they'll say, I want to come with you because I heard God is with you. This is coming soon. Oh, oh my. All right, then it talks here in chapter 9, the burden against Damascus, Syria, and the eyes of man as of all the tribes of Israel shall be toward the eternal. Uh, it talks about Tyre in verse 3, built itself a stronghold and heaped up silver as the dust and fine gold as the mire of the streets. I think that's talking about New York City and, and uh, Wall Street. And God is going to cast her out and smite her in the power of the sea, and she shall be devoured with fire. Read Revelation 18, 17 and 18, talking about the very same thing. He says he'll encamp about his house in verse 8 because of the army, because of him that passes by, and because of him that returns, and no oppressor shall pass through them anymore. For now have I seen with my eyes. God is going to show us, and he's going to protect us, and nobody's going to come against us anymore, or if they do, they will be destroyed, as Micah 5 says in other places. Verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you. He is just and has salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So when God begins to return blessing and says he'll come dwell with us before the millennium, remember that it's Christ. It's the one who came riding on the foal of an ass when he was here the first time. Same being. Notice, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Who is the big military power today? Britain? They couldn't beat the Falklands. We're the big military power. We're Ephraim. This whole thing is set in Ephraim. And the horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the heathen. And his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. So once he starts with his remnant people, it's going to spread from there. He'll return in glory and he'll go over the whole world. But it's going to start there. As for you also, by the blood of your covenant, I have sent forth your prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. God is going to begin to bless. Turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. It's not millennium yet. We're still prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double to you. When I bent Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. God is going to raise the bow of Ephraim and the sons of Zion, I believe, in this land against the Gentiles who might come against us. Uh, he'll defend us, verse 15. Uh, verse 16, the eternal their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be as the stones of a crown, lifted up as an ensign upon his land. He's going to raise up Zerubbabel as an ensign, he says at the end of Haggai 2. And this is going to culminate with us having, being the stones and a crown, Revelation 2 and 3. Now, notice chapter 10. Ask of the eternal reign in the time of the latter reign. Uh, that was toward uh, February, March, April. The early rains came in November, December. I ask you, when does the rain come to California? Anybody lived in California many years? 
Rains come December, January, February through March. That's when they come, for the most part. We always look forward to rain at the ministerial conference in January. So the latter rains could be for this land, not just for there. And that's where we get a lot of rain in this, well, we'll never get a lot of rain, but when those rains come through California in December, January, February, it sometimes comes here as well. Um, I want to skip on here. I want to finish this. Verse 7, They of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as through wine. Yea, their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Elijah has to turn the hearts of the fathers and the children together. The events that we're talking about here, as I said in, in the end of Micah, are going to occur, and our children are going to be highly impressed. They'll turn to God. I'll hiss for them and gather them as I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. And the pride of the Assyrian, verse 11, shall be brought down, Egypt depart away. So this is talking about the end time. Christ isn't here yet. The Assyrian has to be destroyed at the end, the day of the Lord and all that. Then it talks about three shepherds, three works, three churches being destroyed because God is not happy with them and loathes them. It's talking about the church of God. So this is still a time before Christ returns when the church is going to be destroyed some more. The major part worldwide has already been destroyed. But some of the daughters, three major trees, the fir, the cedar, and the oak, as it says in verse 2, are going to fall. And then he equates it to three shepherds falling. So those are big trees, and I assume it's big groups or big churches at the end time that are going to fall. And about a false minister who rises up that doesn't take care of the people. So all right, let's go then quickly to chapter 12. The burden of the eternal for Israel, says the eternal, which stretches forth the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. There's going to come a time, remember, the armies are going to come and try to destroy God's people when Satan is cast down in Revelation 12 and in Daniel 9 where it talks about Jerusalem being built back in troublous times and then they'll come and set up the abomination of desolation and we have to flee. But up until that time, God is going to be a wall of fire around, a defense from above. He's going to gather his people together and protect them. And he even tells us in Micah 5 to go out against the Assyrian when he comes into our land. Where is our land? Our land is where we live. Our land is where the church started. Our land is the land of Ephraim today, the American, the American soil, I believe. We'll see more and more confirmation of that, I think. And he says he'll make his people in Isaiah uh, 41, maybe, and in Micah 5 or 4, a sharp, threshing instrument with teeth. And when the two witnesses go out, they're going to be given teeth to thresh. So anybody that comes up against Jerusalem, having been built is one to be threshed for it. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. It's going to be a little bitty church against the whole earth, and God is going to protect it from them. 
until the time that he himself says, the abomination is set up, and when you see the armies coming, get out of there. It'll be protected up until that time, but after that, it won't be. And I think Daniel 9 indicates perhaps three and a half days once that abomination is set that we have to get to a place of safety in Zion. Um, verse 6, In that day will I make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among wood. That's power. Fire, you know what fire does to wood? <laughs> the, the true Jew. And like a torch of fire in a sheath. And they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. Does that indicate that a Jerusalem that has been desolate for years and men have not passed through or gone back to and returned to is going to be inhabited again in her own place? where she originally was before a counterfeit was built. And that is the one that the world will hate. The Zion that no man seeks. And they will seek to destroy it. And God will make us devouring fire. There has to be a Jerusalem somewhere. I think God will lead us to it. In fact, I'd be surprised if he isn't. We'll find out. But there's an awful lot of scriptural evidence that there has to be a Jerusalem built from desolation, that it doesn't exist today, and it's been desolate all this time, and it has to be built there, and that the world will hate it. So, we'll continue probably next time with Seth and I, I mean with... Uh, with Nehemiah, get my Nias right, and uh, see what the story has more for us.